The text for this morning's sermon is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind, and so we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're talking in these Advent sermons now about our need for a Savior. And in verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2, there are three reasons given. According to verse 1, we need a Savior because we're dead in trespasses and sins. According to verse 2, we need a Savior because we are captive to an alien prince or power. And according to verse 3, we need a Savior because we are children of wrath by nature. And the first thing I want to stress this morning is that you won't learn this anywhere else. This is not the kind of description of human nature that you'll find in Time or Newsweek or the Tribune or on the 6 o'clock news. Virtually no one outside a little tiny group of evangelicals spread around the world believes these things. Who believes that without a Savior, without a divine Savior, we are so dead in sins that we are incapable of no spiritual good? Who believes today that without a Savior, we are captive to a supernatural power called Satan who governs this world system? Who believes today that without a Savior, we are sentenced to hell and will be tormented in the lake of fire forever and ever. Who believes these things? A little tiny group of people. For the way is narrow and few there be that find it. If there's going to be any salvation at all, we have to be told these things by God. It is the witness of God concerning our self-understanding that counts, isn't it? It really doesn't matter what you read in the paper or here on the television or the radio. What matters is what God thinks about us. Is that not true? And where will we find that? In His Word. And I speak having been persuaded that the Bible is the testimony of God to my condition and to my hope. If we don't start with the testimony of God's interpretation of our situation, we're going to be like blind people who hear all this talk about color and light and perspective and develop sophisticated arguments to the effect that there is no such thing as vision. And that color and light and perspective are the vain imaginations of religious people importing their desires onto reality because of their discontentment with the dark. That's the interpretation of religion. Religion is the opiate of the peoples. It's the drug of the masses who don't have enough upstairs to really deal with reality. 
And that's not just a classic Marxist statement. It's a classic American materialist statement. And the difference between the two is that American materialists don't outlaw religion. They just imitate it for good financial purposes. And that is the true meaning of Santa Claus which I hope has no place in your home or life or the lives of your children. The true meaning of Christmas is that God sent His Son to save me from the rottenness of my heart. That God sent His Son to save me from captivity to Satan. That God sent His Son to save me from the sentence of hell. Who believes that? That's unacceptable to our culture. And therefore, American materialism, seeing that the impact of 2,000 years of the Incarnation is undeniable, does not deny it outright. They imitate it with Santa Claus and a hundred other trappings to divert the attention of religious people and cause their inclination to flow in financially lucrative channels. It's the same as Marxism. It's no better from God's standpoint, whether you're godless communist or godless American materialist. The meaning of Christmas is unacceptable to the spirit of the world And we'll see before we're done from verse 2 why that is. The only way to break out of cultural slavery, and I want you to be free. I don't want you to be children of this age any more than I want to be. The only way to be free is to let God interpret your situation. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Literally, they go like this. And you being dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the age of this world, or the course of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, or the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let's take verse 2 now and break it into three pieces. First, Right in the middle of the verse, the phrase, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, or your version perhaps, according to the prince of the power of the air. There is a being who rules over an authority of the air. Second, end of the verse, that spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, those people who have no savior. Third, at the beginning of the verse, You once walked according to the course of this world. That's the result of the work of the Spirit within the sons of disobedience, to simply be in step with the times. Let's take those one at a time. First, what does it mean to say that there is a prince of the power of the air or there is a ruler of the authority of the air? Air. That's where we live. Between heaven above and earth beneath, there's air, the the abode of mankind. We say things like, there's excitement in the air. What do we mean? We mean that 
So many people are being affected by excitement. It just must be in the air. It's just, it's, it's everywhere. It's against you. You, you. Wherever you go, there it is. And that's the meaning of air here. It's the place where you live. You can't, if you stay alive, get away from air. You breathe it. It's life. So the point here is there's an authority in the world that governs wherever man is. So close as air. That's how close Satan is to you. What does it mean when it says there's a, a power or an authority of the air? I think probably that's a collective reference to chapter 6, verse 12. In chapter 6, verse 12, a very familiar text to those of you who do spiritual warfare. I hope that's all of you. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, that's the same word as verse 2 of chapter 2, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you take all of those four categories of demonic beings, wrap them all into one, the package will be called, I think, power of the air. Just a collective reference to the supernatural beings who inhabit and influence the abode of mankind. And then... It says there is a ruler or a prince of this power of the air. So there are three elements. First, air, the abode of mankind. Then authority or power, the demonic beings that inhabit, influence, and govern and rule this area. And then a prince, that's Satan. And the reason we know it's Satan is because they're very similar phrases used to describe him elsewhere. Matthew 12:24. he's called the prince of demons. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world. John 12.3, the ruler of this world. And Satan himself, when he came to Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him with world rule, what did he say? Do you remember? He said, to you I will give all this authority, same word as Ephesians 2.2, 2, and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. And he wasn't lying when he said that. God has delivered over to Satan for a season. This is your hour, Jesus said to Satan, and the power of darkness. For a season, God has given into the hands of the almighty Satan, almost almighty, to rule this earth. And so he is the prince of the power of the air. And the age in which we live, therefore, what does this mean? For us, it means that the norm of life in America, Cameroon, Russia, China, is evil. It means that the dominant moods, the dominant spirit of the age, the dominant theories, the dominant philosophies are godless. They may be moral but they're godless. Satan can clothe himself as an angel of light. And he rules, and the normative, dominant themes, moods, philosophies, theories of the age, whether you live in America or Russia or Afghanistan or the Philippines, are godless and evil under the influence of Satan. And thus Paul 
identifies the present age as a present evil age, Galatians 1.3. Or Colossians 1.13, he calls it the dominion of darkness. Or in 1 John 5.9, John says, We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now, where in the world is there any hope for dead people governed by Satan to be saved? There is hope. Paul describes it like this, and it gives you a clear picture of his conception of how captive to an alien power we were without a Savior. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul says that God may perchance grant them to repent and to be saved from the snare of the devil who had taken them captive to do his will. So there is hope, and yet there is a captivity. The cross is a death blow to Satan. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But the way of the cross is very narrow, and few there be that find it. And the way of Satan is very broad, and many there be that find it. And so as long as this age lasts, it's going to be an evil age. And the dominant themes of this age are going to be in the control of Satan. Now that leads to the second part of verse 2, to the question, how does Satan rule the world if he's the God of this world? And the answer to that is given at the end of the verse, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. So now you can see who the sons of disobedience are. That's everybody who has not been saved. Everybody without a Savior is a son of disobedience, and Satan holds sway in their hearts. If you're here without Christ this morning, you're not free. You're a slave of Satan. And you'll see many texts before we're done to the effect how he governs you and rules you. We need a Savior, not just because we're dead in sin, but because Satan is at work all around and within these dead people to keep them dead. You can see this in our culture. Just look at this one-two punch of Satan. There's the individual moral corruption in our hearts. And then all around us in our culture are supports and encouragements of this corruption that's within. I'll give you some examples. The moral corruption of drug addiction is supported and encouraged by pushers and advertising. Where's that come from? The moon? The moral corruption of gambling is supported and encouraged and made more hopeless by legislators who legalize and institutionalize lotteries and paramutual betting. The moral corruption of prostitution is supported and encouraged and made hopeless by a whole system of pimps. The moral corruption of habitual sexual fantasizing is supported and encouraged and made more hopeless by the exploitation of bodies in advertising and videos and movies and magazines. 
Now, how does Satan pull this off? Corruption and deadness within and surrounded by manifold supports in our culture. Well, let me mention two texts that show you how he pulls it off through the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4.3 says, and don't bother looking this up, let me read it to you. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the likeness of God. Now picture this. Dead people can't see anyway. Dead in trespasses and sins without God. That was our condition without a Savior. Couldn't see a thing. There was always the possibility that the quickening ray might penetrate to the dungeon of our soul and waken us from the dead by the power of God. And therefore, Satan employs every shrewdness, every power over time to guard us against the light so that we can't see any light in the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You remember the parable of the four soils? The word is sown and the first seed falls on the path. And who's the first one there? The vulture. Satan. And it's gone. And the interpretation given by the Lord is when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. Why? Because if it stayed there, it might become fertilized by the Holy Spirit and watered by grace and come alive. And he takes it right out of their minds. So the first way that Satan works in the sons of disobedience is by blinding them to the gospel and to any chance of good news that might quicken them from the dead. Second, you know this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here's one of the sentences from that story. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan Fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land. Now, here's the second way that the Spirit works in the sons of disobedience. Dead people don't need any encouragement or any help to do evil deeds. All they do is evil deeds with respect to God. People who do not do things for the glory of God dishonor God in everything they do, whether it's moral or immoral. It's sin. So they don't need any help from Satan. Ah, but there's so much more evil they could do among men. And how does Satan control them and get them to do what he wants them to do to maximize the slavery of this age? Answer, he fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira just when he wants them filled with the evil desire of greed. And so he's got control of all people without Christ. In a sense, their own deadness rules them. And they do what is evil according to the desires of the flesh. That's what it says here in verse 3. But when he wants them to do what he wants them to do, for example, they're on their way to church. For some reason, by common grace perhaps, God has drawn them to read the ad in the newspaper or be invited by a friend. And here they come to church and Satan doesn't want them there. What's he going to do? He's going to fill them with some desire that would divert their attention. Maybe it's just a nagly advertising sign with a sexy woman and the mind is filled with lust and the Holy Spirit is nothing to them all through the worship service. They can't get that picture out of their mind. 
Where do those signs come from all over this city? Satan. He rules the world to support his slavery in the heart of human beings. John 8:44, "You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires." Judas. What did it say about Judas? Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray them. Why did he do it just then? Because Satan filled him with desire for the 30 pieces of silver just then. To answer the question then how Satan governs the sons of disobedience and maintains his hold on the theories and philosophies and moods and tenets of our day, He blinds the minds of unbelievers to the gospel and he fills them with desires to do his will. And that leaves just one last piece in verse 3 at the beginning. It says, following the course of this world or according to the age of this world. This is the final death blow because notice what it implies. If Satan governs this age and provides manifold supports for evil in culture, and if Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers and fills them with desires, what do you get between the world and the unbelievers? Harmony. Harmony. In step with the times. Comfortable and at home in the world. You feel at home in the world? Watch out. Or are you an alien and an exile like Jesus was? Do you turn on the TV and say, nothing, just feel at home there with the advertising and the quality of the programming and the God-centeredness of it all? Do you read the funnies, go to movies, look at Time Magazine, go to concerts, and feel at home in this world? Watch out. We are not at home if our citizenship is in heaven and we have been quickened from the dead and released from the slavery of Satan because this is the world of darkness. So test yourself this morning. How at home are you in the world? Well, there's one last thing that has to be said concerning our condition. It comes from verse 3 at the end. We were by nature children of wrath. You see, up until now, I can imagine someone saying, So what? If I'm at home, I'm at home. I'm comfortable. I'm making it. Happier than a lot of Christians I see. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Wrath is coming. Who's wrath? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 5. Be sure of this, that no immoral or impure man or one who is covetous, that is, an idolater, 
has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is coming. So now we can go back and complete the phrase in chapter 2, verse 2. We were by nature children of the wrath of God, which means simply that we naturally did things God hates. By nature, we rejected the knowledge of God, Romans 2.28. By nature, we rejected the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2.14. By nature, we were filled with desires that amount to idolatry, Colossians 3.5. Until we had a Savior, by nature, we were heaping wrath onto ourselves for the day of judgment. God is not indifferent to sin. When he sees sin, his holiness is kindled and his wrath is very great. Who can imagine the wrath of Almighty God who made the universe with a word? Who can stand before him when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. And if you're a diamond, you will be purified. And if you are stubble, you will be consumed. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God, upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There will be on that awful day a separation between the sheep and the goats, and the Lord will say to the goats on his left hand, Depart from me, you wicked, into eternal fire prepared for Satan and his angels. In other words, if you walked with him in this age, you will walk with him into the age to come, into the lake of fire. John calls this awful reality the wrath of the Lamb. Strange phrase. The wrath of the Lamb. What's that mean? I think it means there will be an infinite indignation in the heart of Christ against those who scorned his lamb-like meekness. This is the age of meekness, people. This is the age of the lamb, not the lion. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. His arms are wide. Tears stream down his cheeks. Blood drips from his own hands, not yours yet. But the day of meekness will end. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Son of Man will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. He shall drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed in the cup of his anger. 
and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor of Westminster Chapel for 40 years in London. A great preacher, a great writer, a great man of God. When he was 81 in 1980, he was interviewed by Christianity Today. That was the year before he died. And they asked him, knowing that he was an old man, do you have any last word for our culture, for our day? And he said, simply quoting 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And that was his final word in the interview. And so I want to leave that ringing in your ears because my prayer is that having heard that we are dead in sin without a Savior, that we are sabotaged by Satan and held captive by an alien prince without a Savior, and that we are sentenced to hell without a Savior. Having heard that this morning, I hope you wake up dreaming about it and tremble in the night. Because if you don't, I don't know how you'll ever cherish Jesus Christ as Savior. Cherish! Long. But when that happens, here's the sentence I'm giving you to win the victory in that night hour. I used it this morning at 4.45. Jesus delivers you from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us 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 from the wrath to come. I hope you don't forget that sentence. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted hour. Turn and be saved all the ends of the earth. Let's stand for prayer. Father, I gather my mind and my heart together now with several hundred of your people in this room and we unite our wills to plead for unbelievers. First, for those at the International House. Oh God, come down. Come down, Holy Spirit, and let there be a revival, an awakening, a quickening, a strange and wonderful encounter with Almighty God there in that place that we might hear the story of salvation on their return. And then secondly, for those among us this morning who have not closed with Jesus Christ but have stayed on the outskirts of the kingdom, oh God, draw them in by the irresistible beauty of Jesus Christ. Banish Satan, oh God, from their lives right now, that He not blind them from the glory of Christ in the gospel. And having seen, may they be drawn in right to the center of the kingdom. The awesome truth
of candle three. A sinner justified and free. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all the people said, Amen.